It's episode 62 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm Steve Garshinsky, and joining me today are Ryan Top and J.P. Breen. How are you guys doing? Well, I, don't answer too quickly. I say it would have been uh, would have been nice to start off with back to back wins, but getting a win off of Kershaw starts off, I guess, the series pretty well. It's not a bad way to do it. No, it was it was fine. Yeah. So, you know, it was interesting last night, I, you know, after the game, there's kind of the come down after the loss and everything like that. And I kind of turned stuff off for a while. And then right before bed, I, I opened Twitter up because that's how I like to relax. It's, it's a bold strategy. <laughs> Open Twitter, kind of get the heart rate up and then jump into bed. And uh, all of a sudden I see, yeah, Ryan and then Andy, you guys are getting like blocked by Keith Law. On I Twitter? did not get blocked. Oh, okay. Andy did. Yeah. What was going on with that? Um, he, Keith Law did not like what Jeremy Jeffers said about, uh, the Dodgers getting lucky. And I pointed out that that seemed like the kind of thing that would add a little sizzle to the series and maybe be a little more marketable because baseball needs that. And he disagreed. I, I mean, I didn't know, you know, a, a, an ESPN insider like that would see it as such a hot topic, but I mean, d- does it really matter what players say after the game? Well, I also... I think it's worth noting that like everybody is actually taking what Jeffers said out of context. I mean, basically he didn't say, you know, everybody wants to say that Jeffers saying Turner got lucky, Barnes got lucky that like somehow he's trying to suggest that Turner's not any good. And he basically just got lucky hitting his home run. That's not what Jeffers said at all. Jeffers said that he actually threw the pitch he wanted to pit to, to throw on to both Barnes in which he got walked. And then to, uh, I think it was Barnes is the first one that he was talking about. Um, but then Turner's home run and that they got lucky that he missed a spot because then they were able to take advantage of it. And basically Jeffress was saying, if I would have thrown the pitch where I wanted to throw it, they would have, you know, they wouldn't have had a chance, but they got lucky that I messed up and which seems fine to say like, that's not, that's not really incendiary whatsoever. It's not controversial, controversial. If pitchers say, yeah, if I hit my spots, I would have a better outcome. Right. But, I, I mean, know. And so everybody is talking about the fact that, you know, he's denigrating or he's like being really hard on the Dodgers or he's trying to say that they suck or he's being a poor loser. And I was like, he's they asked him about the pitches and he was like, no, I stand by the pitches that I threw. You know, I'm paraphrasing. He was a little bit more angry about it, but he was like, I stand by the pitches that I threw. I just threw them in the wrong spot and they got lucky that I threw it in the wrong spot and they took advantage of it, which it seems to me like exactly what you could say. But instead, everybody just put on Twitter that. Jeffress said the Dodgers got lucky, which is not actually what he was talking about. Well, and it's funny because, you know, Law's got his thing with like Craig Council as manager for the Brewers and stuff like that. You know, he, he's he's not a fan there. He's not a fan that Council was a manager before Stearns took over. So I, I know a lot of Brewer fans, I think, uh, don't appreciate many of Keith Law's opinions, which that's kind of his thing. What's Law's Law has a problem with Council? He did not like that council was hired before the new GM took over and that it was a condition of the employment. So he kind of blames it like he, he holds it against council that like this was the circumstances of his being hired, which is weird. But he doesn't like that a new GM got saddled with an, um, an owner's pick for a manager. Instead of council, was. instead of reevaluating like what's currently happening, I mean, he has softened on the well, council stance. You kind of have to when they're point. in the NLCS well, at this point. And when what he's going to be do? the runaway manager of the year in the National League, I, I, is there any question that council's going to win the National League Manager of the Year? Who else would it be? I don't know. They they could make something up, but council's definitely going to win Manager of the Year. But like, who cares if somebody else chose council? Like that only matters if he's a bad manager. Right. Yeah, and if they work well together, that's all that really matters. But I you know, Keith Law at one time used to be the place you'd go for some like fresher takes on baseball and now he's just kind of the get off my lawn old guy. Yeah, he seems to have morphed. It's crazy how quickly that happens. So everybody should keep that in mind when they have takes now that uh you you quickly become the the old guy um and kind of watch yourself. Evaluate. Says the guy who is saying People need to talk less while I'm eating brunch. <laughs> That's not a baseball take. 
I can be an old man at brunch. So, anyways, hey, uh, you can help fans find the podcast by rating and reviewing Milwaukee's Tailgate on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We want listener questions, so follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. Email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our Facebook page. You can also follow the three of us on Twitter, and you'll find that in our Milwaukee's Tailgate Twitter bio. And finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash MKE tailgate. Our ball and glove patrons will receive the monthly minor league extra podcast. Milwaukee's tailgate is sponsored by carbon Ford brewing from dragon flute to block party to fantasy factory IPA K4 specializes in English style malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades out now is night call smoked Porter and the Downton Apple apple ale. I got it this time. You nailed it. I Both did times. Also, Fantasy Factory IPA is now in cans, just in time to grab a six-pack and tailgate when the playoffs return to Milwaukee, right? They, they will return. They will return. So go out, buy those cans, sit in the parking lot and drink them. Uh, and don't forget that we have a deal exclusively through uh, Milwaukee's tailgate with Carbon 4. Use the promo, co- promo code MKE tailgate in the Carbon 4 web store and receive 20% off your order. Visit the brewery on Kinsman Boulevard or find their beer at a local retailer. As always, check out Carbon4.com for more information. Carbon4, beer brilliance. Milwaukee's Tailgate is also sponsored in part by Sound Devices, a premier manufacturer of audio production gear, and they're located right here in Wisconsin. Sound Devices gear is used worldwide, and it's found on the set of Oscar-winning films and popular TV shows. And if you're looking to create a professional-sounding podcast, check out the MixPre 3 and MixPre 6. For more information... Visit sounddevices.com. Hey, the Brewers had a good start to this NLCS. Now, everybody was going to have a heart attack by the end of the game, but they pulled out a 6-5 win on Friday. They did. So, uh, some big big goings on in that. Uh, Kershaw struggled, so the Brewers got to uh, the Dodgers' ace, which was good to see. And part of of Kershaw's struggles, I'll say, I, I I was in the stands watching this, Yasmani Grandal was terrible. Oh, he was awful. Which I'm going to credit myself for him being terrible in that game because I had just talked about how he would be my number one choice for the Brewers to acquire in the offseason. Like, I really, and I still, I, I think Grandal's a great catcher and a, you know, very good hitting catcher. And I would love to see the Brewers add him. And uh, yeah, but that was, that was some nightmarishly bad stuff. Yeah, I mean, what did you think of, of that performance and, and I guess what it did for the, the Brewers' chances of winning? Because he, you could see Kershaw was really getting frustrated. Or Kershaw was getting frustrated, but I actually agree as much as I disagreed with a lot of the post-game analysis from uh, some of the national broadcasters that they had to come on and share their thoughts about the game. Um, I actually did agree that, that Kershaw's stuff has taken a step back, and if it's not, if it's not on point, he can struggle a little bit. Um, so Kershaw is not, you know, the pitcher that we saw two or three years ago. He's still obviously one of the best pitchers in, in the NL, but he's, he's far from unbeatable, which he used to be right. I mean, it's not, I would, if you, it used to be like, if you had just did, if you had to decide between facing Clayton Kershaw or Max Scherzer, like you had to have a thought about it. And now I would much rather face Kershaw than Max Scherzer any day of the week. Right. And now Jacob deGrom is up there in terms of like people that you're a little bit more afraid of than than Clayton Kershaw. Again, that's not saying that he's one of the worst pitchers in the league or it's not saying he's not an ace, but he's far from the pitcher that he was a couple of years ago. And age does that. I'd rather face Hunjin Ryu. Or I'm sorry. I'd rather face Kershaw than Hunjin Ryu at this point. I, I think you're going a little bit overboard with that. I mean, Kershaw's stuff is still really good. He's just not throwing in the mid to upper 90s. Well, no, he was never a, an elite, elite velocity guy, though. He was a guy who threw in the low to mid 90s, 93, 94, 95. But he located everything so well and offset it so well that it was it played up like it was that. much. Sure. Velocity. But I mean, a big problem with for Kershaw in the game was just the fact that he had pitches that should have been blocked behind the plate that Grandal was letting by and the Brewers were able to advance and get guys in scoring position. Well, then he had, he, had, he also had the catcher interference that put right. That Aguilar was a, on and that allowed Perez to hit a sack fly. Right. You know, yeah, I mean, that was, that was certainly a, an issue. I mean, I don't think there's any way of getting around the fact that Grandal was able to enhance the Brewers runs scoring chances. But like at the same time, I'm still struck by, I think it was something the number, the exact number escapes me at the moment, but like Kershaw, I think if I remember correctly, had 30 pitches with two strikes 
and got one swinging strike on those 30 pitches. That's like guys nuts. were just on him. And and if they weren't on him, they were just able to to foul him off to be able to to do damage eventually. And to me that that was a reflection of kind of his stuff on the day that it wasn't it wasn't as good as we would expect from Kershaw, but it was also the Brewers putting together some good at bats. And obviously, I know that we want to say Kershaw's biggest trouble was you know, Grandall or, you know, the fact that he's aging, his biggest trouble was Brandon Woodruff. Well, yeah. And that's what I was going to get to. Uh, Brandon Woodruff was the guy who really got things going in the game. Um, Gio Gonzalez gave the Brewers two innings, uh, gave up one run. And I was a little surprised that he came out like not disagree with surprise, but I thought surprise Woodruff came out that no, that that, that they pulled Gio got pulled after that point when you had the pitcher spot due the next inning. I figured they would get one more inning out of Geo and then, you know, turn it over to Woodruff. That seemed to be a, a reasonable plan and they pulled the trigger early and thank God. Well, they did. and I think part of it is that they had, they had faith to start Geo, but they weren't going to kid themselves that if Geo didn't look great, that, you know, that they were going to try to like get more innings out of him. So they bring in Woodruff, uh, Woodruff pitches really well, and then he also gets up there and breaks the game open for the Brewers with the solo shot off of Kershaw. Right, and yeah, <laughs> I, that, that is, was a, that is one of those indelible playoff moments, like that you're going to remember for a very long time. And that was a bomb, right? He, he that did was not a, hit a cheapy. Yeah, it was. But I think the most interesting part about it is actually the pitch right before he hit the home run. He fouled it off with a good looking swing that showed he was on the fastball. And like, as soon as he did that, you were just, I don't remember, obviously, you know, before we knew that he hit a home run earlier in the year and and he's shown that he can swing the bat a little bit, but I just was looking up his uh, statistics from college and he didn't even hit a home run in college when he was with Mississippi state. Um, But which is surprising because, well, a, he didn't actually hit that much, but um, with the kind of swing he has, he clearly knows what he's doing a little bit at the plate in terms of being able to hit. And as soon as that, as soon as he made contact with it, man, that was going a long way. And obviously Kershaw is one thing, but still, like, how many people do we see? And we would say, you know, lefty lefty matchups are terrible. And a lefty lefty matchup as a pitcher, and then you're able to do it off of one of the best lefties in, in the league. Like that was ridiculous. Well, didn't Mad Bum hit two off of him uh, on opening day a couple years ago? I think so. But this, yeah, Woodruff's home run is the first home run by a relief pitcher batting left-handed against a left-handed pitcher in baseball history. It was very specific. That's, I was going to say, that is one of those fun facts that you... It is, <laughs> yeah, very, it is very, very specific. specific, but he's the first relief pitcher with a lefty-lefty matchup to hit a home run in the playoffs. So it was pretty cool to see. But Woodruff, Woodruff has looked great now for a while. Like, he has legitimately been a very good pitcher for the Brewers for, I mean, since he came back up in... At he the had beginning the, of September. He had yeah. the, but he had the rough start. What was that back in May? Uh, April. April. That he had kind one of, really bad start at Colorado. That kind of shaded, you know, all of his appearances after that. And then he never really got. I don't think he got another start after that, did he? Because Peralta came up. Peralta came up, and, and he, got the he we just kind of we spent all season saying, you know, where's Brandon Woodruff? What's going on with this? And now it really seems like next year he's going to he's earned a chance. Yeah, I mean, JP, what do you think of that? Does Woodruff? With this showing that he's had, I mean, is he getting a chance as a starter next season, or do you think they just kind of roll with uh, the setup they have for a little while? I don't know. It's it's. I think that what they really want to be able to do is move Corbin Burns to the rotation, and this might be what Brandon Woodruff's role is to do kind of two or three inning outings out of the bullpen to be able to you know, provide some length if they don't necessarily go out and get an ace for the rotation and they still need to rely on their 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 bullpen to be able to go and get you know four or five innings um a right-handed josh Hader. i mean i don't know if he's that good but like i'm talking role wise right but like even then like i don't know if brandon woodruff can go back to back days i i don't know if he's going to be able to have you know a fastball i mean his fastball is up 97 98 miles an hour and he's throwing sliders at 89 90 miles an hour that have late bite on the outside corner against righties but we don't necessarily know, you know, how he's going to hold up over the course of a year pitching out of the bullpen all the time. Right now, it seems like he's actually adjusting to it pretty well. But 
after I think he he said he struggled early with it. He said it was a mental adjustment. Yeah, that he needed to figure out how, and a physical too, because guys have to figure out how to get themselves ready to come into a game without knowing, you know, <laughs> 24 hours ahead of time. I'm going to be starting the game. It's going to start at this time. That's what I'm going sure. to do. But I mean, so much of the so much of the pitching staff has to do that for the Brewers now. I think at a certain point. Everybody kind of realizes, okay, you you have to learn how to prepare quicker. So, anyways, we don't want to talk too much about next season yet because the Brewers are still playing. Uh, Josh Hader came in uh, in Friday's game, three innings, zero runs. He gave up a couple hits, but the Dodgers didn't really look like they had much of a chance against him. So, no, they were able to work him for forty-eight pitches, though. That's probably the most significant thing because that now places he should be available for Monday, but it's not a super easy call at 48 pitches and he's had two days off like he's ready but I don't know if they would necessarily want to if the situation called for it on Monday would he go another 48 pitches I don't know I would think they would try to avoid that what what's the deal why is 48 pitches like such a bigger deal than like 35 which he does regularly that seems arbitrary 48 is more than he had ever thrown yeah but he also he he did pitch three innings he did pitch three. Innings, I mean, yes. a lot of times when we talk about the the pitch totals he had as being high, it was still only two innings. It was really rare that he'd go three innings in a game. Um, yeah, yes, that's true. And so, I mean, pitches per inning, it's not like he's exploding that number at all. No, but he had he had times when he would come in and he would go like twenty five pitches and he'd get rid of like seven batters or something, and it was you know, well, just yeah, just down. because he wasn't. Just because he wasn't, you know, otherworldly in terms of it doesn't mean it's an issue. Oh, I no. I I would see no issue whatsoever with him being ready on Monday. But what I'm saying is not necessarily. Yeah, I I think he's going to be available. My question is, how available is he? How far would they want to push him? What do you mean how available? You mean how many innings are they willing to go? Like how far would they? Like are we talking about him throwing another? Because we've seen Hater at times be used as a situational lefty. Also, he was used as a situational lefty in Game Two of the the DS. Because he had just pitched a bunch the day before. Sure. So, I mean, we've seen that. I, I doubt that he's that limited, but would I, I would be surprised if they were trying to push him into the 30s for pitches on Monday. I don't know. We're in the playoffs now. I mean, this idea that, like, guys aren't going to get pushed a little further than normal, I think, is silly. You know, what else are you playing for? Well, no, you're it's not a, playing it's a to keep them, of, You're not playing to keep guys fresh in September. Well, you're, you're playing for him to be effective. Because he's a guy who you know can lose effectiveness, and there there are more days off in the playoffs. If you were if you were trying to make him as successful as possible, or, or like as effective as possible as you're saying, they wouldn't have sent him out for the third inning. I mean, his stuff was down, his velocity was down three or four miles an hour. He was not as good in the third inning. If that was the biggest issue, they're still he is still the guy that they're going to turn to if they need to get outs. Right, and they were willing to scrape through that with him on. On Friday, so why wouldn't they? On Monday? Just because of how much he threw on Friday, and I'm not saying they won't. I'm just saying that they're. I think you're I making will be surprised. I will be surprised if Josh Hader throws, you know, more than 30 pitches on Monday. I think you're being kind of like the the national coverage of the the Brewers bullpen usage and worrying about like Josh Hader threw three innings and now he's not available. How can you not have him available every single game? Because there seemed to be this like. You know, Smoltz was on it and some other guys like that where they just couldn't believe that Josh Hader is not available every game because you burned him in three innings, not realizing that, you know what, it's important to get a win. But it's also like, yeah, so maybe he won't go more than 30 pitches, meaning he'll probably be available for two innings on Monday. Potentially, yeah. Well, but the thing is, you don't need to caveat that much. There are obviously other things that could happen. There's no need to cover every single possibility that could happen, right? I mean, you're saying that, like, there is a small chance that he's not available to go more than, you know, or to go 30 pitches on Monday because we don't really know what the situation is and we shouldn't be so confident. But, like, we know. Like, what, but what I'm saying is, when he came into that game on Friday, he was fully rested, fully 100% ready to go you know, to the limit for whatever they needed. I don't think if he pitches on Monday, that will be the case. I well, think but there think will how be many, some, think about how many days off he had until that Friday game. Like he had four days off before they played Friday. Yeah. He pitched he Friday. Pitch on, and then he has another he two days Sunday? off. Did he pinch in the clincher? In yes. Denver. Did yeah. He? Remember they brought him oh, in. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But he didn't pitch like 
a ton of innings in that game. So, I mean, the idea that he'd been overworked in this time span was a little crazy. And, you know, I think also there was this idea that in the following game, you know, Corbin Burns has been really good out of the bullpen. And there was the idea that you bring in Burns and he can then be hater-ish, hopefully, for, you know, the, the following game. And he wasn't. Yeah, I'm. That's my one thing in this entire playoff run where I I really did wonder why Council was so quick to yank Burns on uh, during Saturday's game during Game Two because the Dodgers were hitting him. the Dodgers had Burns. I mean, the guys he had just seen had made some contact off of him. I don't know that that necessarily portends to the next guy and the next guy after that doing the same thing. I thought that he probably should have been given a little bit more leeway to get out of his own jam. Oh yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Cause first I want to wrap up um, later in the, the game in game one, we had Sedanio Soria and Jeffress all struggled. So the Bruce had a six, one lead after um, Aguilar hit the solo shot. It looked like, Hey, they're going to cruise. And then all of a sudden Things just kind of, you know, the Dodgers picked at it, picked at it, picked at it, and then all of a sudden it looked like a bit of a disaster late in the game. Um, is there some worry about uh, the bullpen going forward? Is this just a matter of, I mean, I looked at it, you know, you see the, the Dodgers bringing in Yasiel Puig and they're bringing in Jock Peterson as, as guys off the bench. Like, it's just a deep lineup. Yeah, it just turns out that the Dodgers are pretty good. And once in a while, like Manny Machado is going to get a home run. Like, yeah, he probably will. Yeah, that was it a double that Jeffers gave up to Machado. He gave up a hit. He had Machado like one, two, oh, two, something like that. We're talking on Friday. On Friday. Uh, Looper. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, but he threw uh, like a slider low and away, and Machado really just like he got down at it and he just poked it out there. Like it was a great hit off a great pitch. Um, So, yeah, you're dealing with a deep lineup, you know, um, and I think that's going to be an issue regardless of the game, regardless of the size of the lead, if they can build one. Well, the Dodgers have so many hitters, and like you said, that they can bring off the bench. And the the Brewers really also have this as well, not to the extent the Dodgers do, but they also have a deep lineup. But the Dodgers can really just grind you down because they will be incredibly patient and will take really long at-bats against you and just work you and work you and work you. Uh, Puig did that in uh, Game 2 in his first plate appearance we were we were moving from the wedding to the reception at that point but i did catch i was like this at bat is still going on it was sort of surprising that it just kept going and going i don't know if you know this but the postseason takes forever yeah i've noticed the commercial breaks i'm sitting there no i'm not even not coming back from the commercial i'm not even talking about commercial breaks but you have good hitters against good pitchers and at bats take a long time well fewer mound visits Every at-bat is so valuable as well that you see all the mind games in terms of pitchers trying to stand there and freeze the hitter, make them uncomfortable. You have hitters trying to call time at the very, very, very last minute to try to throw off the comfort of the pitcher. Like All of those mind games are going to start happening in the first inning, right? And that we're just going to have to deal with those things, I think, over the course of the playoffs. And and I, it's, I understand why all of these things happen, right? Like, and you saw the Dodgers, like the Dodgers, when Yasmani Grandal was behind the plate, he's staring at the Brewers uh, hitters while he's giving his signs because he's trying to make sure that they're not looking back and, and trying to steal signs. Like, I have i don't know if I've ever seen a catcher literally like putting down signs for fastball, curveball, slider, all of those things, and and not looking at the pitcher and staring at the Brewers hitter to see if they're going to be looking back at him. Um, they did that with, it was on on what was it? So Friday night, um, multiple hitters in a row where they were just staring at the the Brewers hitters to see if they were going to look back. Hmm. I did not catch that, but being in the upper deck, it's a little hard to catch that. <laughs> yes, that gets a little difficult. So, but Knable came in, closed things out on Friday night, and everybody was happy. We move into uh, Saturday's game, and Wade Miley was great. Wade Miley pitched five and two thirds innings, no runs, no walks. Like he's he's efficient on the mound, which. Again, Wade Miley can be a guy that, you know, he plays around the zone and puts some guys on base, and he was able to avoid doing that. Against that lineup, I one of the national podcasts, I don't even remember exactly who it was, but somebody was talking about the fact that, you know, it seemed weird that the Brewers were going to run back-to-back lefty starters out there because the Dodgers really can get to him and, and do damage against lefties. 
And so they were, which seemed to be the opposite of some of the stuff that was coming out where the Dodgers, they had more, I mean, the Dodgers hit against either, but they struggled more against lefties than they did against righties, which is weird because really their, their main power from left hand, the left-hand side of the plate is Bellinger and Muncie. And who else? Grandall. Jock Peterson. Jock. Yep. So, I mean, it, it isn't a super deep team in terms of their left-handed power hitters, but it, it seemed to work for them. So it was what Miley did from, I was very in and out at that point. Cause like I said, I was actually at the wedding at that point. Uh, he, it really seemed to just get ahead of batters. That was the main, the main thing, which with the Dodgers batters you kind of have to because if you let them get ahead they're going to grind you and then they're going to you know get into hitters counts and really look to drive baseballs so get ahead of them and what was his cutter usage i didn't even go back and look at that yet i should have but was it was he really leaning on the cutter i didn't look at the exact number but yeah i would say that he probably threw 35 45 cutters yeah which and i mean by september he was up almost over 50 yeah, I mean, he's basically cutter in. Uh, this is to right-handers, right? It's it's pretty much just cutters in, uh, changeups away once in a while, trying to flip over a curveball to kind of change the eye angle a little bit. But he's almost exclusively cutter changeup. And then if he can get ahead, sometimes he'll go fastball up. I mean, he did that to guys like Justin Turner who have struggled with pitches high up in the zone the entire series. I was surprised to see that uh, Wade Miley, and maybe it's a hot gun for the the national broadcast, but was throwing, you know, 93, 94 miles an hour with his four-seamer. Oof. Yeah, I did not catch that. (laughs) Or he was just amped up because, you know, hey, playoffs. Everybody's excited. So Miley pitched great. uh, But was he pulled too early? That was a big talking point I've seen. You know what? That's the way the Brewers are running the rotation in all their pitchers. The fact that he got he was in the sixth inning. I mean, the Brewers let him out, left him out there for a while. Now, remember, this is a guy that there was always the the routine question: Do you feel comfortable with Wade Miley starting your first uh, NLCS game or an NLCS game? And now we're debating: Should they have left him in longer because he was pitching so well? Well, that was because I didn't see that during the game because I was. Well, using my phone to watch the game, so I didn't see the conversation. I was kind of surprised later. I'm like, really? We're talking about the idea of Wade Miley should have gone longer than what he did. I was shocked he was still in there in the in the fifth, let alone the sixth. Yeah. Well, so. I mean, he was basically being allowed to go until he had any trouble, right? And which is why he's going to go as long as possible on that in that game. But I mean, we saw in the. Um, the the game 163 when Shasin was in and everybody was like, are they leaving him in too long? Are they leaving him in too long? Oh, no, he gave up a home run. They should have taken him out earlier. I was like, he gave up one hit. It was a home run. Like the problem now with all of this rhetoric around the, the bullpen usage and the Brewers kind of having this revolutionary bullpenning situation, which is not all that revolutionary whatsoever in the first in the first uh, place, um, Jarrett Seidler from BP actually was looking back at old uh, World Series and, and playoff box scores. And he said, actually, the way that the Brewers are doing this back in the, the 20s, 30s, 40s, like was routine. They And he found box scores all the time that they were using openers or they were having their starter go one or two innings before they started to kind of play platoons really quickly. So first of all, it's not new. It's what you do when you don't necessarily have starting pitchers that you can rely on to go deep. And what they are willing to do is they have two guys that they're willing to ride. And it's Shasin and it's Miley. And you're going to let them go until they struggle. But the other thing is, if you would have let Miley go for one more batter and he gives up a home run and in, in the sixth inning, instead of going 5.2 innings, if he just gives up a home run and like everyone then says, well, why didn't you turn to the bullpen? This entire situation in which everyone is nitpicking about when do you turn to the bullpen? How long do the starters go? is just going to be basically whatever doesn't work, everyone is going to criticize. Is that how that works? Is that how that goes? That that feels like that's how that goes. I mean, but the thing is, is like I and on Twitter, I put just like a a, a, a joke, right? Like I was just like, well, the, you know, the key thing about bullpenning is you actually have to let your your starter go into the sixth inning and then your your relievers give up some runs. And then John Heyman was like, does Saturday night's game show that bullpenning doesn't work. And I was like, I don't, first of all, understand how you see that as bullpenning other than just like a normal game in which your starter <laughs> went 
the sixth inning. There's nothing uh, bullpenny about that. Right. But it's just like it's I think it's somehow they were over reliant upon their bullpen instead of like Wade Miley. You probably didn't want him to go too far the third time through the order, which is just a natural thing that you do. And to Wade Miley's credit, like afterwards, they asked him, was he pulled too early? And he says, you know, as a starter, you want to go as deep as you can. But we've done this all year and it's worked repeatedly. So I don't understand why we wouldn't have done it again. I mean, the vultures are circling for the bullpenning thing anyway. There's there's a certain contingent of the national media tends to be older (laughs) that really just like are waiting for it to fail so they can pounce all over it and just try to drub it out like that. Like this isn't even bullpenning. I know, but they want they want to do it with the Brewers because they're they're going to look for any angle they possibly can for the Brewers failure is going to be their key to go after the concept of bullpenning because the Brewers have been a heavy adopter of it. Basically, if you want to look at what the Brewers have done for people that like aren't necessarily in well versed in the conversation of bullpenning or what what it's going, uh, you know, with the national conversation. Basically, what the Brewers are doing is they're looking at their starting rotation and saying, who do we trust in big games? And right now there's two of them. And so in the games in which those two are not pitching, they're going to rely more heavily on the bullpen because they want to get to their better arms more quickly. It's not that complicated of a situation. They're trying to mess with the platoons for what the Dodgers are doing in a, in a couple of games where they can. But everyone's going to be shocked when Yuli Shasin goes on Wednesday or uh, on Wednesday uh, on on Monday in game three. He's going to be allowed to go a little bit further than the people that go on Tuesday unless he gets blown up. Right. I mean, then sure. he'll have a little bit early. Yeah. So, I yeah, again, there's always everybody's looking for an angle. Everybody's looking for a story. And that's just the one that they've picked to go with for the Brewers. So it, I don't see any reason to get irritated, upset, or even pay much attention to what. I mean, John Heyman is not someone you look to for baseball analysis anyways. Like, unless he's showing you the, the note he received from Scott Boris and the information he got, there's really no purpose to anything that John Heyman says. So where is he at now? Fan cred? Fan, fan rag? Oh, I think it's cred. I thought it was rag. Well, was whatever. it? He was at fan rag for a while. Now he's at something called fan cred, which <laughs> I'm sure is a thing that it also... They, they all sound like, you know, if somebody's writing a movie about sports, like those are the websites they'd make up. <laughs> it does. From like uh, that draft day movie with Kevin Costner? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It'd be something like that. Fancred.com so. is reporting. So that tells you, I mean, I guess how credible the sites are. But anyways, uh, so Corbin Burns comes in, he struggles, um, puts guys on. So uh, like I was saying earlier, I think they were kind of hoping for a hater-ish performance out of him where he'd go a few innings and that just didn't happen. But they didn't give him much of a leash there. They gave him what, one out and two base runners? Well, no, because he got the the last out of the previous inning. Mm -hmm. And then... He put two guys on, and then they went to Jeffers. and they and they yanked him right away. Two men on. They didn't give him more leeway than that, which seemed quick. I I was surprised that they went to Jeffers that quick. Does it seem quick? Um, for a guy who's been as good as Burns, yes. But for then you would say that Burns. for somebody as you would then say for somebody as good as Jeffers has been, wouldn't that be a good spot to be able to just close the door in a threat? It depends if you trust him that much at this point and i don't think that i it's not that i don't trust jeffress it's that i i trust burns basically as much as i trust jeffress i think the the overall balance of the two right now i you know i think they're both very trustworthy and i would have given burns more leeway to get that out i don't i don't think there's a significant step up at this point going to jeffress over well I, th- I think it's more more than just saying like normally we'd let burns go to see what's happening they're really looking at the matchups they're looking at how well you know the dodgers lineup is tracking whatever he's throwing yeah you you, you shrug but i they're they're following it more closely than just like yeah in this situation let's let it ride because you know we they like did. him but i mean you're you're still talking about two two righties and once they brought Jeffress in it wasn't like they were instantly looking to get a lefty in there to to play matchups they were you know they were going to ride with Jeffress so it's not a matchup situation unless you're talking about more specifically than just lefty righty righty lefty so yeah anyways Jeffress struggles um he was the one that gave the back-breaking home run to Justin Turner 
uh, gave gave that up. So um, that's a few games now where Jeffers is he's had a rough go of it. He was able to kind of do a Houdini thing the inning before when he took over for Burns. Well, they got double plays in three straight innings. Yeah, but he continues to give up. You know, soft contact that seems to get through, and then he just misses spot. And like you were saying, JP, you know. Turner struggled with stuff that's up, especially up and in if you're throwing hard. And I was surprised that Jeffress wasn't just pounding that fastball up and in on him because he looks like he's clueless against that. Yeah, it, I mean, he was behind it all, like all series. He's been way behind it. And clearly that's been something they want to go with. But I, I'm surprised because this is something that I, I noted, I think, on, what was it, Thursday or, or Friday? Um Jeffress has not really been thrown a splitter all that much. He's pretty much been fastball curveball at this point. Yeah, he has largely abandoned it. You see it every once in a while, and it it almost comes by surprise at this point because yeah. it is so infrequent. But his splitter was the one that he hung to Justin Turner for the homer. Right? Well, and, and Turner's looking for that ball down and in. He is a early adopter of the whole swing plane revolution deal, and he wants to get to that specific pitch. Well, he didn't get a ball down and in. That was Jeffress just left it over the plate. Yeah, and he hang. didn't get it up. We I know that we didn't have Bill Schrader to say that it was a hanger, but it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah, it was just right over the plate. It was a little up, but he didn't like. You got to elevate. You could see with Turner's swing, like if you leave stuff low in the zone, like he's gonna drive that, and he did. He showed what he could do because that was a big fly that he hit. But Jeffress doesn't work high in the zone, like much at all. It's not it's not what his game plan is, right? No, but he he also wasn't hitting that low outside corner with his curve or yeah. I, I mean he had you know, it seemed like when he located that curve, he just kind of got it in the zone. Yeah. And that idea that he was he was he had command of it, he clearly didn't have that command. He 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 might be able to get it in the zone for a strike, but he didn't have command to put it where he needed to. Right. Well, and that's why, you know, when he was so good over the vast majority of the season, it was a splitter that really was just an absolute weapon for him. And the fact that he hasn't been throwing it, you know, and there is something to be said. I this is I don't know how many Brewers fans know this, but I mean, you know, he's been dealing with epilepsy for years and has been kind of dealing with some seizures again recently. And, you know, I don't know what that's like. I don't know how healthy he is. You'd like you'd like to think that he is perfectly healthy. I mean, he has pitched in big spots and he's done it, been able to do it well at times uh, in September and into the playoff run here. So I'm not by any stretch of the imagine saying that, you know, this is the one thing that that's happening there. But that's not something that's been talked about all that much, probably for a reason like, you know, it's his own privacy. Like he, we don't need to necessarily harp on it too much, but. I do wonder when he is vastly changing his entire repertoire and he's dealing with those sorts of things. I don't know if he's like dealing with lingering after effects where I don't and like, but even that line of reasoning doesn't necessarily make that much sense because I would think that he's not throwing a splitter because his forearm or elbow hurts like that because it has so much pressure on that and that wouldn't have anything to do with seizures or anything like that. So, I mean, like that doesn't even track, but the, the over the overarching thing that we've been talking about the the infrequent usage of Jeffress and how sometimes he's not been available when we expected him to be available and the fact that he is dealing with this uh this issue that's kind of been long-standing is something that I think is is noteworthy and by the way it's pretty clear that Corey Knable right now is the closer oh yeah he is the guy they want to finish the game yes where where Jeffress had been the fireman late in the game well i think like, they still want him to be the fireman they they kind of do but canable's the guy that when there's been trouble late and they needed to just shut that game down canable's the guy they're calling well when you say fireman i'm thinking of you know specifically jeffers being brought in with two on nobody out with after burns gets pulled but that was canable in game one yeah sure yeah and they right but later they want to use Jeffress. It doesn't yeah, matter sure. where in the game. He's the one that comes in when it, stuff's looking hairy and they're like, we got to get out of this. Sure. He is. Yes. And they weren't going to do that two days in a row with Knable carrying that kind of a load. Yeah. So um, anyways, you know, it was disappointing to see that four to three loss. But, you know, the other thing is three runs against the Dodgers is probably not going to do it very often. No, it's not that it's that's a tough situation especially in miller park we'll see what the conditions are like in la this week how that goes because you get those night games and it can be those night games at, at dodger stadium can be really really offensively unfriendly 
mm-hmm. though we are also talking about games that will be starting at five o'clock local instead of seven o'clock local. So when they play at night, so we'll see, but there is a difference there. I mean, is, is JP, is this a matter of the, the offense at a certain point is going to, I mean, they did carry the team in game one. They scored six runs. Is that kind of going to be the recipe? They're going to have to put up, you know, five plus runs to really have a shot in most of these games. Even if the bullpen's doing all right, it's going to be really hard to, to keep this Dodger, Dodgers lineup down. Yeah, I think that they'll they'll definitely have to score more runs than we were seeing against, you know, I, even though the Rockies, they were able to score some good run, a good amount of runs. But against the Cubs, where we saw them kind of really shut the Cubs down because the Cubs offense had struggled so mightily and the Brewers did, only had to score in some pretty tight spots. Um, yeah, the Dodgers are a different beast. And I mean, if we did want to look ahead, anybody that they're going to face coming from from the American League with whether it's going to be the, the Red Sox or the Astros, the offense is going to have to carry it. Yeah, the the AL teams that are left, the, the offenses are you will not insane. shut those offenses down. Those you are will you, not. Yeah, those are insane. Uh, looking at so, and it it really doesn't matter if it's the Red Sox or the Astros. Both of those are going to just be ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So, We're yep. Looking at a situation in which I think you're going to need somebody to. to I obviously, you know, Yelich has been the guy we've relied on for so long. Kane actually had has had a couple good games here. Somebody needs to get hot. And it, and it needs to not necessarily, I know that we've been able to kind of do it because Orlando Arcee has been getting some surprise hits. You know, he got a home run. Uh, Eric Kratz has had a couple of good games. They need, they need like Braun, Yelich, Kane, Moustakis. They need somebody that's just in the meat of the order to just go nuts. Aguilar. I mean, yeah. he's been, he's probably been their best because Yelich has been so minimized by the fact that nobody wants to throw him a strike. He's been taking, Aguilar has been their best what? Probably their best power hitter, the power source throughout the... the. No? Am I wrong? I would say probably not, but okay. I mean, nobody's been great. Kane's been better. Uh, Shaw's, you know, shown as much pop as Aguilar, really. That's true. I mean, they both have the home run. No One home run. Nobody's, yeah. nobody's been fantastic. You know, Moustakis has a few hits, you know, timely hits. Um, but that's about it. Yeah, the meat of the order hasn't really done a ton. When they've scored a lot of runs, it, it's been the bottom of the order. That's Kane's been on in the top, and then the bottom of the order. Well, Yelich has been on a lot. Yes, he's been getting on, but mostly via the walk. And that well, but that's part of the problem is when they can't make teams pay when it's you know Aguilar, uh, Shaw, Braun, you know, hitting behind Yelich. It's not giving teams a reason to have to try to face Yelich. Put him on. Put him on first. Nobody else is hitting the ball with authority right behind him, so it's going to be a hard. It's going to be hard to get him around the bases in that case. And Yelich is going to have to make some adjustments here. He obviously had a, a really good series in the DS. Hit a home run. Was on base all the time. He's hit a five seventy one on base percentage in those three games. He did, but he only had like two hits. Right. And uh, and now it's really he has taken a couple walks in the DS or in the the NLCS, but really aside from one hit, you know, hasn't done a whole lot. So he's going to have to make the adjustment and be willing to take what's being given. Yeah. So uh, game three is uh, Monday, and that is Ulysses Chassin versus Walker Bueller. Um, I guess JP, what can we expect in that matchup? You know, what's what's what does Bueller have? What are, what are the Brewers going to see out of him? Bueller has best stuff um, on the Dodgers. He's going to come. He has he has legit A stuff. Uh, whether or not he's going to be able to command it, it's going to be you know a big thing for him. Um, but yeah, if you want if you want to watch a right hander who's going to absolutely bring it and challenge the hitters, Walker Bueller is somebody that uh, is going to open your eyes if you haven't seen him before. He's he's one of the best pitcher young pitchers in in the NL and. The Brewers are going to need to be able to get um, they're going to have to be patient and they're going to have to make him throw strikes. And if they can do that, you know, they have a chance to be able to get to a young pitcher who who is used to just overpowering guys. Um, But, yeah, it's not going to be a walk through the park. The thing about the Dodgers in a short series, it's going to be Ryu. It's going to be Kershaw and it's going to be Walker Bueller and. You know, maybe they'll go to Rich Hill on like some kind of kind of bullpen-ish day if they want to do that on on uh, on Tuesday. But the vast majority of the 
the guys that the Dodgers are going to be bringing out as starters can absolutely bring it. And Bueller probably has the best stuff to anyone. Um, as far as st- setting up the lineup for that game, is that a situation where you'd be tempted to stack your lefties? To- I don't know. I don't know if I'd stack it, but I think, you know, you'll probably go. I think you'll probably still do, you know, Yelich. Um, the question is going to be whether or not, you know, you drop Aguilar down a little bit or if they actually try to sit Braun and maybe go with somebody like Granderson. And then you're going to have, you know, Yelich, Granderson, Shaw, Mustakas as your left handers. Um, That's what I was wondering if you did something like that where you stacked it, maybe even put Granderson in the leadoff spot and moved Kane down to the third hole. Yeah, and but then, then what are you going to necessarily and then and then you still have Aguilar in the fourth spot. No, Aguilar would hit like sixth or seventh because you'd have in the four spot, you'd have Shaw in the fifth spot, you'd have Moustakas. Yeah, I mean, I understand certainly why that would be attractive. I don't really foresee that happening, especially late in the game. I don't think you still want to stack. Um, I know that they, they have guys on the bench that they can go to, but I still I still get uncomfortable with stacking. Um, it's not it's not my preferred lineup construction, though. It's certainly something that they could explore. But do you want to get Granderson specifically, I think, at the top of the order to try to get him at least a couple at bats against Bueller? No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think so. I think I would still have Kane leading off. Yeah, I mean, I think there's the idea like, oh, it'd be great to get the the old lefty, you know, an at bat. But Granderson's not a guy, especially if Bueller's bringing velocity, you know, that I think you want to see in there. He's not going to be that much of an improvement over Braun. But Granderson has been so good at working counts. And since he came to Milwaukee, that's really been his thing. He's but you know what? taking a ton of walks. That's, I want to see that late in the game when they need a pinch hitter to come in. That's what I want to do is see a pinch hitter that can really work a reliever. Um, and, you know, Granderson was almost a hero on Saturday with the home run that fell inches short. Just short, yeah. If he would have just pulled it a little bit more, it would have been in the whatever the deck is down there now. The the patio? The, the, the picnic area? Yeah. Yeah, I I. I actually sitting at the reception threw my hands up in the air and everybody looked at me and then I had to slowly walk it back. Just very slowly take my arms down. They were like, man, this dude really loves this song. (laughs) This guy loves weddings. It was, it was, it was during the, uh, the uh, hors d'oeuvre portion of the proceedings. So everybody was just hitting around. I thought you were going to say it was like somebody was giving a heartfelt speech and you like Steve Holted it there. (laughs) No, I did did not Steve Holt my, my uncle's speech. No, there was none of that. So he's like, oh, man, this crab tip is awesome. <laughs> the, the Swedish meatballs. Awesome. Everybody should try them. So um, anyways, uh, we have Shasin starting and JP, like you said, he'll likely get a longer leash and can go as far as you know possible before he really gets into trouble. Um, do we think haters the first guy available then again on Monday after that? I, I think it'll depend completely upon how the game's going. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a crappy answer, but like if they need to go to somebody really early, I think you might see Freddie Peralta actually come on. Um, you might see Gio Gonzalez come in if they're going to go with Brandon Woodruff on, on Tuesday. Um, they've got, you could see junior Guerra come in for a couple of innings, but I think it'll all be completely dependent. JP, do you think, uh, is there a lack of trust in Jeremy Jeffress going forward? Or do you think they just keep going to him, uh, because he's been there all season? I think that they have enough arms that they don't necessarily have to rely on him as one of their top, you know, two or three relievers. But I think at this point, over the course of the season, Jeffress has done so much. And I, you know, I understand that so many people don't want to have this line of reasoning, but I think he deserves an opportunity to still come in and throw um, and throw in high leverage spots. Because if it's not him, it's Soria. And Soria hasn't looked great. Um, Corbin Burns, yeah, maybe you can go to him, but he's still young. Who knows? And and as much as you know, Ryan doesn't think that uh, the fact that some guys on the Dodgers were on Corbin Burns means anything for future batters. Um, I don't necessarily yeah, on, on that point. What then would be a significant like key of what might happen in future at bats if it's not how some of the other guys in the game have handled Burns? I mean, I would need to see what the overall stuff was like, especially compared to what <laughs> it was before to really be able to say, <laughs> I don't know what I mean, you're doing an honest because answer. You are quite the scout. So, yeah, it's well, no, all I based mean, you on you see, seeing what he had in like 
yeah, are we looking at a velocity dip? Is there something going on with like command or mechanics or something? Well, the next weird? time Burns comes in, we're going to follow you on Twitter and look for your I was, 2080 grades on every different pitch he throws. I, I was I watching it on the phone. I was watching on a phone. I mean, well, like, then how can you have such a strong opinion that like the fact that they were on the pitch, it doesn't matter. I, I would have given him a little bit more leash, I think. Maybe I, they did, like you guys said, maybe they did have other specific things they were looking at. They probably did. I mean, they're smart. They know what Ryan, they're doing. Ryan believes that anything bad that happens is random bad luck. If it's bad, it's just bad luck. If it's good, the player is playing well. If it's bad, yeah. it's bad luck. No, no, it, that's not true. It's not just bad luck. Sometimes it's the ref's fault. Oh, it's definitely the refs or the umps. Have I complained about the umps at all this postseason? Like, even a little bit? I wasn't sitting next to you in game one, so... <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> so, I, I can't vouch for that for sure. I would suggest that uh, the time that Eric Kratz got called out for a low pit, that, yeah, you absolutely would have been complaining about that. On Friday? Yes, that's when Kratz had, had, the, low, had the low pitch. Oh, yeah, that was... the backup catcher freaked out on the ump, and I don't think... In a situation like that, where where a guy complained about a strike, counsel could have been out any quicker because he's like, "This will be a disaster." Because isn't uh, Perez is the emergency catcher, and he might, also had been pulled out. It might be Moose. It might have been Mustakis at that point. Uh, yeah, who knows who the emergency catcher would have been if Kratz would have gotten tossed for complaining? He has to, but, yeah, be given a lot of latitude in that situation by an umpire who knows what they're you doing. Would hope, you would but hope, but some of those yeah. umps will just all of a sudden, you know, decide to fly off the handle. Yeah. But, Suddenly, Marcus Hanel is coming in to catch. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, yes, yes. But, well, no, because the thing is, is like everybody freaked out about it. And, and you know, I understand it. It was a bad call. But uh, the Brewers have literally just been the beneficiaries of a terrible call the inning before. Or like yeah, that happened. I was getting messages from my brother about this, who's not a Brewers fan, and so he brought that up, and then he he did bring up the fact that that the call on Kratz was bad. So, I would say that um, for somebody who's not a Brewers fan, certainly watches a lot of the Brewers, and we very much welcome him listening to this podcast. Hi, Travis. He he <laughs> He's actually stuck in market, so that's what's on. He he actually doesn't listen that much anymore. He was telling my cousin yesterday he's like i used to listen i don't listen as much anymore <laughs> we don't listen to you much anymore either so um after cory knable who i guess is the um most trustworthy reliever they have left because i think we're feeling kind of shaky about everybody aside from hater and knable at this point i mean i don't i don't necessarily know if i feel all that shaky okay well when i'm watching playoff games i feel shaky about every guy that comes in i guess but that's but then yeah that's the thing right it's just that the the stakes are so high that if if somebody isn't absolutely lights out or you know somebody like canable who hasn't given up a run in i don't know like a month and a half like then yeah i guess we feel nervous about everybody but i i still think you know soria and jeffress and if you can be in a situation in which woodruff can come in i think woodruff has been dynamic i mean he's he's throwing high 90s his slider looks really good. Um, and the fact that he's just basically being able to rely on those two pitches gives him a really dynamic pitch, uh, pitch sequence out of the uh, out of the bullpen. But I still think right now it's, you know, the bullpen's the same as it ever was. And you just keep rolling with it and you do what you can. Um, and you know what? Some of the time you just have to, as a manager or as a fan, you just have to hope that your players actually execute rather than, you know, not is tried as it is like not executing there's not much you can do right there's only yeah there is only so much that a manager can do and there are only so many options for any team and if you're if some of your best pitchers are not pitching well it's really hard to make it through three rounds of a postseason like and that's true for basically any team out there you see the teams that tend to run through the postseason it's their good pitchers pitch well so it, it really does come down to being that simple way more often than I think people want to recognize, but it is how it goes. Yeah. So, okay. We've spent a lot of time talking about the, the rotation and the bullpen and stuff like that, but we got a question from Jason Spitz. He asks, uh, when scope can't get a start against left-handed pitchers in the playoffs, what does it mean for his future in Milwaukee? I guess what's it mean for his future for the rest of the playoffs? Like why is he on the roster? And then beyond that, you know, does scope have any place on this team? You mean in the postseason here? 
in the postseason now and moving forward. Like, yes, what next is his year, role? Big time this year more limited, just because they I have think, guys who are doing what he basically does, but better for the most part uh, at the moment. Perez essentially is ahead of him in that right-handed bat slash middle infielder role. So he's you know, and and RC is obviously ahead of him defensively, and you know has been hitting well too so i think it'll completely depend on uh, so this is in relation to next year i think that yeah for for the playoffs right now he is he is pretty low in the pecking order just because other players around him are actually doing pretty well um but i think for next year it's going to completely depend on what happens with mike moustakas to be honest i mean he's got that mutual option if mike moustakas comes back and you still have travis shaw going in and being able to play some second base for a little bit until Kesson Hira can come up, then I don't know if Jonathan Scope has a spot on the roster. I still actually like Jonathan Scope a lot. Um, I still think he's a potential, you know, three-win player. I think he, anybody, I think a team would be very wise to have somebody like him in terms of, you know, his ability to play up the middle and hit for the kind of power that he can hit for. Um, but he's also a guy that is about to get overpassed by the best prospect in the Brewers system. And who, by the way, I think already hit a home run in the Arizona Fall League. Grand Slam, actually, yeah. Yeah, he's he's getting a lot of plaudits, and rightfully so. And Well, so, but the issue the issue with here is, and it's bad, we're just wondering if he's going to be able to play second base in the majors. Certainly. Well, and defensively, he can. It's just a matter of, can his arm hold up? Right. Right. Like, going to be injured but i think if you have if you have moustakas being able to play third base that frees up then travis shaw obviously to play some second and then really what you're trying to do is just hold on with somebody like travis you can have uh you can have shaw you can have perez for a month month and a half until Hira can come up after the super two and then suddenly you've got a lot of flexibility to come in at second base again and then jonathan scope doesn't really have a spot if you are going to not have Mike Moustakis, then you still need somebody at second base for a month and a half. And I would much rather have Jonathan Scope there than Aaron Perez. I think we're all in agreement there. I think, yeah, and there's no reason that Scope won't come back. The only way he wouldn't come back is if they decided to trade him. But at that point, you're probably taking a loss on the, the trade value. You're getting back much less than what you traded for him. So I would just be surprised if they if they pulled the plug on him that quickly after he really hasn't gotten that many plate appearances down the stretch because he came in so cold and has been bypassed and kind of shuffled off to the side. I would just be surprised if they were that quick to give up on somebody that they gave up so much to get. But at the same time, if you have, if you have Mike Moustakas coming back and you need to make, make room for Travis Shaw and Moustakas, what, when is scope going to play? I would be really surprised if Moustakas came back. I don't think it's very likely at all. Right. I, but I would also say that Mike Moustakis is not going to make a very lucrative uh, offseason contract. And if he has one year, $17 million standing, staring at him in the face, I could see a scenario in which he absolutely says, yes, I will take that. Oh, he can't be offered the uh, competitive. It's a mutual option. Oh, the a oh, mutual yeah, option. Yeah, yeah. The mutual option. Yes. Okay. I don't, so the option in, is mutual. Sorry. <laughs> it yeah. is. I sorry, I was I, thinking of the uh I was thinking of the uh competitive or the the offer, which they cannot offer him. I don't actually know if it's seventeen million. I'm just it's like thirteen or sixteen million or it, something. It's like in that. the mid teens. It's somewhere right around what that offer is. That's why I thought you were talking about that. Nope. So And so he, so I could see a scenario in which he absolutely says he wants it, and the Brewers that actually starts to give them a lot of the flexibility that they enjoy right now. I could absolutely see the Brewers saying, yeah, we'd like Moustakas back for another year. Yeah, it's just those so rarely get picked up. But, I mean, there I guess there could be an outside shot, especially if if they end up winning World Series. Who knows? Well, Maybe you know what? As a playoff team, he could say, hey, we got a good shot if I come back next season. But right? at and the same want to be time, a part like, of it. There's, who's, what kind of contract would Mike Moustakas get on the open market right now? When last year... He was not the only team that would offer him anything was the Royals. And yeah, he had the competitive balance. You know, he had the he had the qualifying offer, but they still only paid him like six million dollars this year. That was so weird because then you had uh, who was it that signed after that for significantly more in basically the same situation Mustakis was in. He waited it out and waited it out and finally ended up signing. 
I don't, I don't know. know. This is your story. So uh, we're going to move on from that since it was such a good question and we have no answer to it. Uh, Bill Walchek's already looking to game four. Uh, prediction for Milwaukee starting out getter for game four. I think it's Woodruff, right? That's what we're You think Woodruff starts? He is the initial out getter for that game. I think that's the direction it's headed. You don't think they go with Geo again, possibly? Yeah, I think it's. You think it's who? I think it's Geo. Okay. Okay. So, and then pretty quickly off to somebody else as need be, depending right. on. Right. They're just trying to be able to set up the platoons in the way that they want. Right. And then they can move, and then they can move uh, Woodruff in against somebody that, you know, likely should have a whole lot of righties in. Yeah. So, hey, any predictions for the rest of the week? What are we thinking? They, they're going to get back to Milwaukee? Yes. Yeah, I think they're going to win at least one in L.A. Well, they have to win one in L.A. Well, that would be how they wouldn't end up back in Milwaukee. <laughs> I mean, they would be coming home. They wouldn't be coming home happy. But. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'll still I'll still I mean, I we do a Brewers podcast, so there's I'm not going to pick against the Brewers, even though I've said I have said that the Dodgers are the best team in the NL, but I'll stay. I'll still say Brewers in seven. And you know what? It's a seven-game series. It takes a lot to get four wins. It does, and it things tend to go back and forth, and this has been a very back-and-forth series so far. I mean, these teams have competed with each other on a fairly level playing ground so far. We'll see you know, how, if that continues, but they've, as much as the Brewers' bullpen has struggled, the Brewers have gotten to the Dodgers' starters more than I think anybody really anticipated. Yeah. So. Yeah, you know, and the Dodgers bullpen has been better than I think people would have probably anticipated there as well. So, yeah. well, it's also I think this is something that uh, Craig Goldstein mentioned, and and for our Patreon subscribers, they'll be familiar with Craig since he did a podcast with us. Um, he actually kind of took a lot of the national media to task for consistently talking about the Brewers' managerial decisions and this chess match, and you know, are they? allowing their their you know their bullpenning to be used in the right way and are they managing better than the Dodgers and all of these things and he, he said and I think he's right he's like all of that conversation just downplays the fact that the Brewers have a lot of good pitchers and they and their lineup is deep and the fact that yeah the Brewers have gotten to the Dodgers pitching staff more than other ones but that's because they have a better offense than most of the offenses in the National League, right? I mean, they've been the fifth or sixth best offense in all of baseball in the second half. Yes, I, I think a lot of the criticism around the Brewers has been just the national media not giving them credit for being a good team. They think they're they're getting by with smoke and mirrors because they're, I don't know, managing in some crazy way. When, yeah, we look at it and say, no, they have good players and they're able to get all of them in. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I mean, as when Yelich is not doing his Barry Bonds impersonation, then that allows for, I think, that narrative to to build a little bit more sure. because you don't have anybody beyond Yelich who really stands out as a true star. I still, I still think that, you know, the fact that the Brewers didn't have Eric Thames make the postseason roster, they didn't have Keon Broxton make the, the roster against the Dodgers. They didn't, like, they have legitimately good players not being able to make the roster because they've amassed so many hitters that are actually they know. have good pitchers that they didn't need chase anderson or zach davies or guys that you know we could say they're not aces but they've been successful they would totally be postseason pitchers on most teams yeah they'd it, be available right and they they're nowhere to be seen they have and granted the astros also have a lot of guys that they did, didn't make their postseason roster brad peacock somehow didn't make when theirs, you have but like when you have good teams you have good players that you're gonna have to leave off the roster. and especially a team that's built around depth which has been what this entire it has been the david stern's model if you want to like boil it down to any one thing that david stern seems to believe in it's depth more than more than anything else is just get a lot of good players well, and but just, the the whole thing with the Astros too, like comparing them, yeah, the Astros are the best team in baseball. So yeah, I would also expect that they had to leave some good players off. But you you had the you had the Rockies who like in the wild card game or or game one sixty three. I don't remember. Like they like Pat Falaika played and did like meaningful things. Drew Butera, right? And you're just like, why are you on the roster? Uh, and and because I actually like Pat Valaika, it was one of those things. I was like, wow, maybe he steals a lot of bases. No, uh, you know, maybe he plays a lot of defensive positions. Well, yeah, I, I guess, but not necessarily all that well all the time. Uh, doesn't hit for average. Doesn't hit for power. 
and he's still up in a really key situation. And that's not to say, you know, not to shit on Pavlika, but like, I just was like, I don't know what you do. Like, I don't know what you're here for, <laughs> which is, I guess, uh, uh, you know, you've got Terrence Gore where I was like, you're here to run. And then you like have a plate appearance and it uh, annoys me. And then you've got Drew Butera, which I was like, you know, you're a good defensive catcher. I understand why you're here. It's funny that you're batting, but I get you. And then like Pat Vlaika comes up and I'm like, why? <laughs> yeah. So anyways, it is fun to see uh, all the chess match, you know, maneuvering going on and We'll have a few more games to follow that. So uh, that's going to do it for this week's show. Uh, we'll be back again next week. I'm sorry to some folks who want us to do more podcasts, but it takes a lot for us to get together every week just to do one, right? I'm going to be in Chicago, man. We're on break for a couple of days. I'm going to go to a few meetings in Chicago to get some stuff done, and then I'll be back uh, in South Bend, and I got to grade a whole lot of papers and all that stuff. Look at this guy living the life, traveling around, grading papers. All those Chicago, the... Chicago so you, bang bang. The I was say that my favorite part is somebody was like, "Wow, man, for for being graduate students, you and your wife really do travel a lot." And I was like, "Well, it also means we're going to stay for free with people that we've like known <laughs> from Chicago." So yeah, that's how we're living the life in somebody's basement. There you go. <laughs> we're, it's caught living. Yeah, that's the way you do it. So, anyways, hey, don't forget you can join our Patreon by visiting Patreon.com/slash/MKETailgate. I'm sure uh, Ryan and JP will talk more about Keston Hira and the AFL pretty soon. So uh, if you subscribe, you're going to get that. Um, and then, as always, follow us on Twitter at MKETailgate. Submit questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and now on Spotify. Uh, leave reviews everywhere, help people find the podcast. Uh, so thanks for listening and look for us again next week on Milwaukee's tailgate. If Chassin can go five or six innings and the Brewers are in a position in which they can win, I... <laughs> now this should stay in the pod. That was my mother calling to FaceTime. She wants nice. to see her grandson. Yeah. Present my grandson. Hold on a second. Show him to me. <laughs> what have you done to my grandson? Okay, what the fuck were we talking about? He was saying it depends, and you might see Freddie Peralta come in. It was your weird yeah. question about Hater. I can take it. Like, what order is it going to happen? Like, who knows? <laughs> I'll take it whenever you're ready. <laughs> the order, who knows what order the relievers are going to come out in? Craig Council bounces that around all the time. <laughs> well, you can have that. Fuck you. <laughs> Look at this. You have Shasin go as far as you can. Is Hater the first guy up then to cover the next two innings to get you into the seventh or eighth? Depends is on that the, or, is that a stupid question? Are. Isn't that how they use Hater? <laughs> Jesus. Depends on who the batters are. No, with Hater, it doesn't matter who the batters are. That's why Josh Hater is their relief ace, because it doesn't <laughs> matter who the batters are. <laughs> God this, this damn it. Should, this should go the podcast. Oh, I'm leaving that in. We're <laughs> coming Bill, back to that. The Bill O'Reilly moment. <laughs> Leave it in. We'll do it live. <laughs> Jesus. Stop being an idiot. Now you're pissing me off. Go. <laughs>